Well, we're in 2 Timothy 2 this morning. If you have a Bible, I would ask you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, we have one we'd love to give you at the welcome desk, which is right as you walk in the, the front doors. You can collect that uh, as you leave. And in the meantime, uh, the verses will appear behind me when we, we get to them. We're, we'll be covering verses 14 through 19 uh, today. 2 Timothy is a letter to weak Christians in chaotic times who don't know what the future holds. Sounds pretty relevant, doesn't it? Uh, In fact, my daughter who's in college, she texted me this week and she said, Dad, is the world about ready to end? I'm scared right now. And she was serious. And I I, I said, I understand. I mean, we live in in very uh, chaotic times. We live in uncertain times. This book This letter written by Paul to Timothy, but also really to the church throughout all the ages, was written to help us persevere in the faith and then hand down that deposit of faith, the gospel, to succeeding generations. So we we desperately need it and thankful for what God's done even as we've studied the book so far. Uh, There's an old adage, and maybe you've heard it, that goes something like this, um, for every seven critical comments or insults, or I'm sorry, for every uh, one insult, rather, it takes seven compliments to undo the sting. Have you heard this before? So anytime you, you're insulted or criticized, it takes seven positive compliments to kind of reverse uh, the sting there. Even people with the strongest personalities, uh, those who, uh, by all accounts, seem to be the most self-assured, and maybe those who are even the most critical of other people, they are deeply stung and, and wounded by Harsh words, unfair criticism, and so on. That, that same daughter that I just mentioned, um, we were having lunch, I don't know, maybe six months ago, nine months ago, and she had this very cute uh, army green jacket, I guess you call it a field jacket, and we're sitting there, and I said to her, I said, oh, great, with, since you have this jacket on, maybe they'll give us the military discount. And now, of course, I was just kidding. I thought she looked adorable, and she never wore that jacket again, not one time. Never wore it again, despite my endless apologies and me telling her how beautiful she is and so on. She never wore it again. Well, you know, it's, criticism stings. And, and maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've been hurt recently by disparaging words, harsh words, reckless words. Maybe you've been hurt by a criticism that was unwarranted. Maybe someone has slandered or defamed your name, so to speak. Uh, well, this book, this section we're in this morning is going to address that. A lot of times when we think about that, we think about the pain of criticism, we think only in terms of individually, but those reckless words do great harm to the church as well. And again, that's what this section is about this morning. Uh, We're going to see three things this morning from the text. Uh, We're going to see what those words are, what are those words, and what do we do about it? How do we respond to them? So what are those harsh words that we're warned against and how do we respond? And then we're going to see what is the disposition that enables such a response? And then finally, comfort for those of us who have had harsh words said about us or said reckless words about others. So uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, again, we'll be covering uh, verses 14 through 19. Let me start by reading verses 14 through 18. Here reads the word of the Lord. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So after reminding Timothy of God's faithfulness and and the power of the gospel and Paul's own suffering on behalf of the gospel, and not only that, the, the risen Christ and the hope that believers have in the future, then Paul tells Timothy to remind them that the members of the church at Ephesus of these same things. And then with very strong language in verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, charge them, again, members of the church, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So Paul commands Timothy, with with God as his witness, to tell the church, which includes us, by extension, not to quarrel about words. Well, that begs a question, doesn't it? What words are we not supposed to quarrel about? What words is Paul talking about? A few verses later, in the verse, verse I read, verse 16, he gives a similar warning. He says, avoid irreverent babble. So what are we supposed to avoid? What words are we supposed to steer clear of? Well, one of the reasons that Paul wrote the letter to Timothy, as I mentioned, was to encourage weak and, and, and really stressed out believers to persevere in the faith and to hand down the gospel to the next generation. But another reason that he wrote it was to confront what's now known as the Ephesian heresy. Now, to call it the Ephesian heresy is a bit misleading because it wasn't just one false doctrine. It was actually uh, five, really. And and here's what they are that Paul outlines in this letter, in his letters to Timothy. Legalism, which taught that a person was made right with God by keeping all the rules and all the commandments, and in this context, uh, circumcision in particular. Um, Jewish myths and genealogies, Those were the folks who speculated on kind of their Jewish lineage and saying the people who were most pleasing to God were those who had the the, the most direct uh, uh, lineage to Abraham. Gnosticism, uh, which just refers to a special knowledge or a a mystical knowledge or experience. And those who taught Gnosticism, which really plagued the church for the first few centuries, taught that if you're really going to be right with God, you have to have that special knowledge Um, asceticism, which taught that God's favor was gained by refraining from certain activities, certain earthly possessions, Um, in in the case of Ephesus, sex within marriage and certain foods and drink. And so they they were saying, if you really want to be spiritual, you really want to be right with God, you have to abstain from these things, Um, which the conviction was that physical things are bad, which not surprisingly led to the denial of a physical resurrection because it was argued Jesus would never leave a spiritual state and return to a a real physical body. Now notice what all of these things are. These are all additions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus my obedience. Jesus plus uh, my family lineage. Jesus plus a special knowledge or mystical experience. Jesus plus my self-denial. And when Paul charges Timothy before God to tell these folks not to quarrel about these words, he's not telling Timothy to ignore false teaching. Okay? He's not telling Timothy to, to turn a blind eye to false teaching the church. Elsewhere, he will explicitly command Timothy to correct and rebuke, 
not just correct, but rebuke those who are teaching false doctrine. So what Paul is telling Timothy is, don't waste your time spinning your wheels debating those who want to persuade you that unless you embrace their personal convictions, you won't be right with God. New Testament scholar William Mounts writes, Paul does not discourage argumentation, nor is this a call for isolationism, but wisdom calls for avoidance of fruitless discussion that only produces envy and strife. So as it relates to the, these words and our response, here's our first point. Gospel plus equations aren't harmless ideas to be endlessly debated. They're destructive fires that need to be starved rather than fueled. So gospel plus, you know, in our day, if you add plus to something, that, that means that it's better, right? It's, it's been improved upon the original. So we have Disney plus and ESPN plus and Hulu Plus and Google Plus and, you know, everything has a plus on it. That means we've taken the original content and we've expanded it. We've made it much better now. Well, usually that's a good thing. Not when it comes to gospel plus equations. Any equation that seeks to add something to the gospel, my obedience, my baptism, my service, my generosity, my, my whatever actually not only ruins the gospel, but Paul says ruins those who embrace that false teaching. And so Paul's not saying don't have theological discussions. It's true we probably need more theological discussions in the church. What he's saying is don't waste your time and energy debating those who don't believe the gospel is sufficient. They want to add something to it and thereby stand above you in their self-righteousness. So Paul tells Timothy to tell the church, avoid such conversations. Again, not ignore false teaching. He's saying that as it relates to these hyper-spiritual ideas, these intellectual-sounding arguments, don't engage. Don't engage. Now, how do we imply that today? Well, what might be some of those words, to use Paul's language, those gospel-plus equations that you might be inclined to be drawn in by and spend your time endlessly debating. What are those speculations? What are those gospel enhancements that you would love to debate and perhaps would divert your attention from the beauty of Jesus and the glory of the gospel? Could it be a discussion on, I don't know, end times? A lot of people love this stuff. A lot of people love to debate this stuff. And if you don't believe their particular perspective on the end times, and you, you know, you're not a true believer, could it be speculation about when Jesus will return? You know, no one's ever done really well at this, by the way, actually nailing down the date. Could it be maybe you get caught up in talking about your own personal convictions related to food or drink or entertainment? Maybe for you, it's easy for you to get lost in political ideologies, and so you want to talk about politics, or maybe medical theories. What is it that you might have the tendency to get drawn in by, spin your wheels debating, that might distract you from the gospel? Now, that, that brings another important point. Why do you think it's so important that we avoid these discussions? Well, because they distract us from our mission. 
Paul's already called believers in this letter to be single-minded like the athlete who competes for the prize, like the farmer who, who plants so the crops will come in, like the soldier who serves for his country. Christians are also to be single-minded in their mission to make disciples of Jesus who make other disciples of Jesus for God's glory. Now here at Capshaw, we've kind of summarized that mission this way. We exist to treasure Jesus, become like him together, and share his gospel. That's what God has called us to do from the scriptures. So that the world might be filled with worshipers of the one true and living God. And discussions about end times or politics or modes of baptism or whether it's all right or not to have a glass of wine with dinner, those are fine maybe for a minute. But then we move on. Let me give you a couple of ways I've tried. I've applied this very poorly over the years at times and, and you know, marginally well at others. But let me give you a couple of examples of how I've tried to apply it. When I first started in pastoral ministry in 2000, uh, there was a small pocket of people in the church who were KJV-onlyites. You know what this is, right? So they believed that if the KJV was the only inspired Bible. In fact, they went so far as to say, if you were saved, if you put your faith in Jesus um, through, the pro- through the preaching of another version of the Bible, you weren't really a believer. And so they came to us as a leadership and they said, no, we insist that you, know, that you preach and teach and lead from the King James Version only. And we lovingly, we, we talked about it, we had a few good discussions, and then we said, that, that's it. That's it. We're not going to debate it anymore. We're not going to discuss it anymore. Here's, here's where we're going. I'll give you one a little more recent. There was a uh, a few years ago, a family started attending the church, and they were just a sweet family. They'd moved from another state, and uh, Janine and I had dinner with them, really enjoyed them, and had some very good conversations. We were standing outside uh, in, in the parking lot after service, and they were there with their daughters. And my daughter, this is the third reference to my, my I must be lonely, I must miss my daughter. This is the, my, that same daughter came up to us and said hi, gave me a big hug, and introduced herself to this new family. And then when she left, they said, we noticed that your, your daughter has a nose ring. I said, yeah. And they said, well, our, our oldest daughter's been asking for years to get, a, to get a nose ring, and we always tell her no. And I said, hey, that's, that's totally fine. I mean, that, that's your prerogative as parents, and you're more than welcome to do that. And they said, well, what are we supposed to tell the, her, our daughter now, that the pastor's daughter has, has a nose ring? I said, well, here's the deal. I mean, how you lead your family, you know, between you and the Lord, but it's hard enough to be a Christian teenager as it is. Why would we want to impose extra biblical burdens on them? And I never saw them again. Um, And I did, I did follow up and I called them. I called the husband and we had a good conversation. He said, we've, we've landed at another church where the pastor's daughter doesn't have a nose ring. I said, okay, you know, Godspeed and I hope things go well for you. Um, but the thing is, we, you know, we have those discussions, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't resist or we don't refuse to have those discussions, but after a while, we say, all right, that's, that's it. I mean, what is this, how is this benefiting us? So Paul tells Timothy, he said, look, you know, avoid those words, those, those extra biblical requirements, those speculations about things, those who want to impose other uh, gospel enhancement. So safeguarding the purity of the church requires that sometimes we actively, strongly, courageously, and humbly address false teaching. 
but sometimes it means putting, in, putting an end to peripheral debates or intellectual-sounding discussions that distort the gospel and distract from mission. Okay, so what do we, what do, we do then? Well, look at verse 15 again. Uh, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, if I'm being candid with you, I can remember being in Awana, I can remember being in Sunday school as a kid, being persuaded, and this is probably, the air was probably on me, not on my teachers, but I can remember being persuaded that it would be by always doing my best that I would someday be able to present myself to God approved. And if I didn't always do my best, then I would surely stand before God condemned. But that's not what's being said here. Okay, that's not what's being said. It won't be because anyone has done his or her best that they stand before God approved. It'll only be by faith in Christ, the one whose best, so to speak, was perfect obedience in thought, word, and deed, including an obedience that led him to death on the cross. It's only by, by faith in Jesus that we stand before God approved and without shame. So what does Paul mean here? Well, He's talking specifically about Timothy's preaching ministry. And what he's saying to Timothy is to do his best or take great pains to accurately teach the undiluted, pure gospel of Jesus Christ, i.e. to rightly handle the word of truth. So in contrast to the false teachers who were adding to the gospel, trying to garner a following and trying to persuade other people to follow them, Paul tells Timothy to study and preach for an audience of one. The image is of an apprentice coming up on a qualifying exam. The approval that Paul tells Timothy to seek is not God's justification. This is not language of salvation. Again, this is language of apprenticeship. Approval means to be true to the test. So Timothy is called to do the hard work of exegesis, bringing out the meaning in the text, exposition, explaining the text, considering carefully the, the historical and the literary context of the text. And most importantly, doing the hard work of prayer, surrendering to the work of the Spirit, relying on the Spirit of God for help, so that the word he preaches is faithful, accurate, magnifies Jesus, and pleases God, the one who called him to such a task. And this charge, of course, is, is a charge to all preachers, not just Timothy. And it is, dare I say, just as relevant today as it was then. Because the temptations have not really changed that much. The temptations for preachers. The temptation to say what people want to hear rather than what God says. The temptation to minimize sin and to maximize human goodness and human potential. The temptation to ignore suffering and instead promise prosperity for those who follow Christ. The temptation to moralize the text, making it all about what we're supposed to do and forgetting what God has done for us in Christ. The temptation to delve into political waters rather than preach Christ. My, my son, my oldest son, um, who's at a church in Escondido, California, just north of San Diego, um, his Senior pastor, wonderful, godly man. He was a longtime attorney, 
in Orange County, and then God called him to pastoral ministry, went to seminary. And, but at, in 2020, right about the time of the election, he had a, a very prominent member of his church who owned a, a very large construction company and came to him and said, hey, I want you need to endorse uh, Trump from the pulpit. And this pastor, again, wise, godly uh, man, he said, that, that's not what God's called me to do. God's called me to pre preach Christ, to shepherd the flock. He said, I'm not going to do that. Like I said, I'm taking me, we're leaving along with all of our employees and all of our giving, we're leaving. This pastor said, well, you know, that grieves me to hear that, but we're not changing the message to suit anybody's personal preference or political agenda. The temptation has not changed. It's everywhere. My author and professor uh, William Willimon, a longtime uh, professor at Duke Divinity School, says this is why. He says, so much of what passes as preaching today reduces salvation to self-esteem, sin to maladjustment, church to group therapy, and Jesus to Dear Abby. Now, if you're under 40 or 30, you say, who in the world's Dear Abby? This is a, she was an advice columnist and you know, just trying, there to give good advice, helpful advice. Now, all that to say, it is devoid of the gospel. Now, this is, this is convicting, this is humbling, this is inspiring, this is instructive for the, those of us who preach. But what I wrestled with this week was, okay, what does that mean for the 99.6% of the congregation or whatever that, that they don't preach? So how does this apply to those who are not preaching? And I prayed about it, and I believe the Lord gave me insight into this. I believe at least it was from the Lord. And there is a principle that applies to all believers. And here's what it is, our second point. Every aspect of the Christian life is to be lived ultimately before the audience of one. Paul, so Paul says, look, do your work. Don't neglect the study. Don't neglect the prayer. Do the hard work. But you're not doing it for the praise of men. You're not doing it to, to even to, get, to garner a following. You're doing it because the one who called you to do it is faithful. And he deserves to be served in a faithful manner. So when you handle the scriptures, you do it for an audience of one. And these words apply beyond just to preachers, but to all believers. A lot of us, I think, live our lives with the mindset of an Uber driver. Um, I got in an Uber one time in Los Angeles and... I don't remember where I was going or what the point was, the purpose was. Uh, I do try, as God gives me the opportunity in, in, with Uber drivers or Lyft drivers, to share my faith if, if God gives the opportunity, and somehow, sometimes he has. But um, I got in this, it was a fairly short trip, as I recall, and I got out. As I was getting ready to get out, the, the guy said, hey, if you don't mind, would you please uh, leave a favorable review for me online? I said, oh, absolutely, no problem. I'll, I'll go to the app and I'll, I'll leave you a favorable review. He said, by the way, anything less than five out of five stars is considered a failing review. This is true. You ask your next uh, Uber driver. Anything less than a five out of five, four out of five is a failure. And I, and I think many of us, we live our lives that way. We believe that if we don't get five out of five stars from everybody in our life, that everybody we come in contact with, then we're failures. If we don't get perfect review from everybody around us, then we're failures. But here's the, here's the reality. You weren't created to live for the approval of others. You weren't. You weren't made to live for the approval of others. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what your boss says about you. It doesn't matter what your husband or wife says about you. 
It doesn't matter what your children, how they feel about you. And I can tell you, as a parent of four, my approval ratings, they wax and wane. They go way up at times, and they go way down at times. It doesn't matter what your children say. It doesn't matter what your mom or dad says about you. It doesn't matter what your Facebook neighborhood group says about you. It doesn't matter what your coach says about you. It doesn't matter what your teacher says about you. I saw somebody, I don't know how I came across this, in my fifth grade class post a class picture on Facebook. I didn't know that we were even friends, but we are. And, and I noticed in that picture, I had, two, I had two teachers, a combined class in fifth and sixth grade, Mrs. Clark and Mrs. Waymeyer. And Mrs. Clark could not stand me. She, really, she told my mom, this is the worst kid I've ever had. <laughs> Mrs. Waymeyer loved me. She said, I just love John. He's so great. He's always got funny things to say, whatever. Well, that, I would be absolutely torn if I went by the approval of those two teachers. It doesn't matter what they say. Now, of course, I'm not saying that your Christian witness doesn't matter. I'm not saying that we should, shouldn't pay attention to how we live around or treat or care for other people. Of course not. Nor am I suggesting that we ignore our bosses. Don't go to your work tomorrow, said my pastor said to ignore you. I'm not saying we ignore our bosses or we thumb our noses at people in authority. I'm not even saying that we throw in our spouse's face, I don't live for you. Okay, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is your primary goal in life, if you are a believer, is to glorify and enjoy God. No one else. You weren't put on this earth to glorify anybody else. And it's God's opinion of you ultimately is what will matter in the end. And this is why the gospel must be central in our church. This is why the gospel must be central for the preacher. Because that's what will shape our identity. That's what will stir our hearts toward a greater love for God, obedience to God's commands for the right reasons. The more we hear about this Christ who died for us, sinful though we are, the more we hear about the steadfastness of God's love, the more we hear about the the endless forgiveness of God in Christ, the one who sacrificed his very life for us. The more we hear about Jesus praying for us even now, the same one who will return to receive us, the more our hearts overflow with gratitude that gives way to worship and joyful and spontaneous obedience. That's why Paul says to Timothy, keep on remembering Jesus. Now, two of the members of the church at Ephesus, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they had forgotten the gospel. They had left the faith. They've come to the conclusion and are trying to persuade others that the physical resurrection, there's no physical resurrection from the dead. Hence, Jesus was not raised from the dead and therefore not the Messiah. And because of their apostasy, verse 18, they are upsetting the faith of some. Now, look at what Paul says in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands... Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So in this, it's a bit of an obscure reference, but uh, to number 16 in Korah's rebellion against Moses, Paul makes that reference, and in doing so, he imagines the church as a firm foundation that has on it a seal. And on one side of the seal, it reads, the Lord, the Lord knows those who are His. And on the other side of the seal, it says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And isn't this the paradigm, the rhythm that we see 
all throughout the Scriptures. God tells us what to do, but He also tells us what's been done. So some of you know I'm currently working on a, a doctorate in West, from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia in, in biblical preaching. I'm very thankful for our elders. I'm very thankful for you uh, for the freedom and flexibility to work on this very slowly. Um, but what's fascinating is, so I go to Philadelphia twice a year for one week at a time, and, and in this cohort that I'm in, uh, there, are, there are 15 guys roughly from all over the world. There's a guy from, the two guys from Korea, a guy from the Philippines, a guy from Indonesia. There's a, there's a guy from Russia who has planted a church in downtown Boston. And what's fascinating, his name is Jan, um, J-A-N, but he said that, uh, you know, he gets so frustrated, he said no one ever pronounces it right, so he also goes by Jan. Um, the more I get to know him, the more I call him Jan. But, um, but he's, a, he's a planted this church. And the thing is, these people from all different backgrounds, ages, temperaments, personalities, whatever, um, and, and they look at preaching, you know, there's there are different personalities and aspects. Uh, Jan, for example, he preaches an hour and ten minutes every Sunday. Some of you look angry with me just saying that. That's a long sermon, isn't it? Um, there's another guy, Jacob, who's in Grand Rapids. He preaches for 22 minutes exactly. I don't know how you do that. 22 minutes exactly every Sunday. There's another guy, uh, an older gentleman, uh, Taekwon, who's from Korea, and um, he's been preaching for years, and he said that every Saturday night he sits down with his wife, uh, his wife there on the couch, and he preaches his whole sermon to his wife as if the whole church is there. Sounds kind of awkward to me, but uh, that's what he does. And sometimes, based on his wife's approval, he's got to go back and, and rewrite his sermon. Um, but he does that. Every, so all kinds of different personalities, but there are a couple of convictions that have united us in, in this cohort. And one of those, again, people different ages and backgrounds and countries and ethnicities, one of those convictions um, is that any sermon in which Jesus Christ is not expressly preached is not a Christian sermon. Advice on how to steward your finances, parent your children, succeed at work, love your neighbor, even interpret the Bible, if it's not expressly brought back to Christ and His finished work, it's not a Christian sermon. Now, it may, may make for a great discussion, a great TED Talk, um, a great class or whatever, but it's not a Christian sermon. Now, this is, of course, based on the Bible, what the Bible says. Another shared conviction among, among the members of this group is that every sermon Christian sermon must include law and gospel. Law shows us, law, the commands of God, shows us what God requires of us, the benefits of obeying God and, and how far we've fallen from God's standard of perfection. And then gospel announces what God has done to save us. One of the, one of the guys has this sort of mantra in his preaching, which I thought was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. He says, any sermon that claims to be Christian must include one law that reduces us to nothing. And two, gospel, which throws that nothing into Christ where everything is created. And we see both of those in the text this morning, by the way. We're given law and we're given gospel. In this case, uh, reverse order. In the last part of verse 19, Paul says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Iniquity is just another word for unrighteousness or sin. This verse tells us very specifically what we're supposed to do. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Depart from iniquity. It's as straightforward as any command in the Bible, not a suggestion, but an obligation. 
We're called to live holy lives. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that is a person who calls him herself a Christ follower, is commanded to leave the self-centered life and instead live all of life for the glory of God departing from sin. That is our calling and our commitment, but it's something else, isn't it? It's also a conviction. It also convicts us. It also reduces us to nothing because we know we haven't stopped sinning. We know we haven't departed from iniquity. We know that we don't live holy lives. Our hearts are filled with thoughts of self-preservation, greed, anxiety, envy, and we become so captivated by other things than love for God. But lest we get too discouraged, lest we're tempted to throw in the towel, frustrated, we'll never be what God's called us to be, and we'll never be able to do what God's called us to do, never be accepted by God. Paul includes the first part of that seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And this knowing goes beyond just the recognition of. This is a reference to number 16, but what does it remind us of? John chapter 10, in which Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So unlike the shepherds of old, whom God condemns in the book of Ezekiel, who looked after themselves rather than the sheep, who took care of themselves rather than the sheep, who often left the sheep to fend for themselves, Jesus, the good shepherd, never leaves the sheep. And he never lets one of his own get away. Now that would have been very comforting to Christians who were watching their friends, even leaders like Hymenaeus and Philetus, walk away from the faith. Jesus will not let his own walk away from the faith. He won't let it happen. And his leadership is characterized by sacrifice. In fact, he laid down his life for his sheep. So for all the times and the ways that we engage in frivolous talk, reckless words, irreverent babbling, Christ died for those sins. He took the punishment for every one of our sinful words. For every time we don't depart from iniquity, but instead rush headlong into sin, saying things we shouldn't, doing things we shouldn't, looking at things we shouldn't, desiring things we shouldn't, Christ died for those sins so that we could be presented pure and blameless before God. So here's, that, or here's the, the comfort that I mentioned. Here's our final point this morning. To be known by God in Christ is to be loved kept and reckoned as those who have fully departed from iniquity. You say, what in the world does that mean? If you're in Christ this morning, if you've turned from your sin, repented, you put your faith in Jesus, God sees you as one who has departed from iniquity because of Christ. Jesus' death for our sins means that none of our wandering, none of our reckless words, none of our uh, rushing into iniquity, none of our failures will ever, will ever separate us from God's love in Christ. And Christ's work wasn't just passive. It wasn't just His death on the cross. His obedience was active. He lived for us in complete obedience to the Father. Instead of using His words recklessly, instead of using His words harmfully or sinfully, Jesus controlled His tongue in every way and in every circumstance in our place. He was oppressed and afflicted, Isaiah said, and yet 
He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus spoke words that were pure and holy and right. He used his tongue to build up, to encourage, to strengthen, and to announce good news. There is hope for those of us who fall, who fail repeatedly with our words. There is hope for those of us who rush into iniquity. There is hope for for those, those of us who give in to temptation, the same temptation over and over again. In Christ, we are not condemned, but loved. The Lord knows those who are His. Jesus' resounding message is one that should be the resounding song among the redeemed. Even if our words are harsh, God's final word is not. For those in Christ, even when we fail, our acceptance before God, our value, our worth, not in what we can do, not in our skill, not in our name, not in win or loss, in pride or shame, as the song goes, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful passage of Scripture. Thank you that you know those who are your own. And in Christ, you will hold us secure until the day, either when we die and we go to meet you, or you come again to, get, to receive us. And Father, we do pray, as we think about all the turmoil in the world, even so, come Lord Jesus. I pray you'd encourage us this morning. pray that you'd give us hope. I pray that you would help us to realize and to revel in the reality that our worth is not in anything we can do, anything that's been done to us, anything we own, anything we possess, or anything we've ever achieved, or anything we failed to do. Our identity is anchored in Christ the one who lived for us, who died for us, and the one in whom we pray. Amen.